Take a network break. Grab a virtual donut to fortify yourself for our weekly jaunt through tech news. We've got a new Google Cloud service, AI networking from NVIDIA, a new Cisco acquisition, new business moves for Riverbed, and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. Your branch has changed. Your SD-WAN should, too. Join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks hosted an exclusive online event that shows you how next-gen SD-WAN and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to sdxcentral.com to get the link to this free event to see the replay or see the show notes for that link in Network Break episode 443. And after the news, stick around for a Tech Bytes podcast, also with Palo Alto Networks, about the branch of the future and how SD-WAN and SASE come together with digital experience management to meet the challenges of security, cloud, and hybrid work at the branch. Uh, last but not least, if you like Network Break, we've got a bunch of other podcasts, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, Kubernetes Unpacked, and our newest show, Heavy Wireless. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversation about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net. Right to the news, Google has announced a new service, CrossCloud Interconnect. It lets you connect Google's public cloud to other public clouds, including AWS, Azure, Oracle, and Alibaba. Interconnections are available in 10 and 100 gigabit per section, 100 gigabit per second options. Yeah, this is interesting in that we haven't um, historically seen the other cloud providers like Google Cloud, like Azure, like AWS, even acknowledge that the others exist. Although we've seen a increasing trend over the last, I don't know, year or two, I guess, um, that Google uh, and even AWS acknowledges the fact that they are not the only supplier. And if they want to continue growing, they're going to have to realize that a lot of enterprises and a lot of customers actually want to be on multiple clouds, not just on one. And that is that uh, that delusion that was going on it was a marketing delusion it wasn't a real one sure um, is you know that's past and now we're into reality that it's interesting that Google's now basically giving us what I read to be a fairly basic uh, interconnect service between uh, Google AWS Oracle whatever mm-hmm. you seem to deploy a, a remote VM a VM like a virtual router of some sort whether it runs in a container or a VM and then Google says we can send up to 100 gigs of traffic down a single pipe to that. And if you want to scale larger, we can do that. Uh, and this allows you to have, and it's all orchestrated from within the Google Cloud interface. So this, if your prime utilization is GCP and you want to interconnect to just a small thing over there on AWS or maybe you want to connect to a data lake analysis tool in Azure or something like that, they can set up a, a an interconnect and you can move data across that, yep. which is interesting i think it's kind of an obvious thing for these companies to do uh because it makes it easier for them to like stay with google if that makes sense i think you're correct in that this is a very basic interconnect service uh so when you use it google provisions the physical connection between google's network and the network of whatever public cloud you want to connect to uh you do run a virtual router in the other public cloud as well not a google virtual router so you'll have to figure out which router you're going to use in the other public cloud and google is not guaranteeing uptime from the other cloud service provider and cannot create a support ticket on your half on your behalf so it's basically just we'll we'll set up the connection for you but then you're on your own operationally uh once it's set up however i think the setup, you know, could be complex. And I think it's smart for Google to make itself as friendly with other public clouds as possible because it knows it's sort of number three, at least here in the U.S., uh, compared to AWS and Azure. Well, there's a lot of companies out there doing the hybrid interconnect. That is, you know, stretching connectivity between all of the clouds. And they'll provide all of the routers and all the connectivity. Um, some of them even go as far as to say, we tr- we will move the bandwidth over our own backbone. Mm-hmm. Uh that's not. It's not really their backbone. It means that they're either using 
uh, equin- interconnects to Equinox or they're coming out a back door using a direct connection from the, the provider. And in some cases, they're actually using uh, the, 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 some of the cloud providers' actual backbone, the internal backbones to move traffic around. Not that it really matters at the end of the day there. And they are heading towards guarantees. So this is sort of a near enough, good enough first foot in the door type solution. And I think most companies will still want a third party who specializes in hybrid interconnection. But if you're somebody who's in Google Cloud and you say, you know, I really need to just, and you look in there and there it is, you might not know that you would want a third party uh, type of service and therefore you end up just choosing this dumb solution and you stick with that. It's like using Microsoft Word for 20 years and then suddenly realizing you can write in plain text and that would have been easier. Yeah. I feel like uh, multi-cloud is, is definitely real. I think organizations that are in cloud probably have workloads in different public clouds. Uh, I don't know that there's a huge appetite to sort of connect them up to say, like, I'm going to store my data in cloud A, but do the processing in cloud B or use no, cloud B no. as a backup for cloud A, in part because, you know, the public clouds operate on the sort of Hotel California model where it's easy to check in, but if you're going to check data out, that's going to cost you yeah. quite a lot. And so the use cases don't seem to be all that compelling to me, but I guess Google feels like, you know, whatever they can do to bring people into their public cloud, they're going to do. Well, let me let me throw this one at you. AWS okay. doesn't seem to have an AI offering at this time. And Azure's offering is a bit nascent. And Google seems to have some AI ML type stuff going on that seems to be better than the others. Now, if you believe that... And, but all your data is in some other cloud, Oracle right. or whatever, mm-hmm. you want to suck it in to do the AI part. Well, maybe mm-hmm. this is what you use, right? Maybe it is. Because yeah. the developer doesn't actually want to go and talk to the networking department to set up a hybrid cloud connection because, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then later on, somebody will discover it in the bill and they'll go, what the hell? And then they'll... You have to look at that yep. data transfer bill and be like, why didn't we just wait for AWS to develop an AI thing for us? Yeah, no. or why didn't we talk to the networking team who've already got a hybrid cloud solution in place <laughs> that costs almost nothing and, yep, all that sort of stuff. So I think this is, you know, this is kind of like there's a gap in our portfolio. We can do it. It wasn't too hard. Let's ship it. There are some uh, features that they talk about on the page. Uh, the links will be in the show notes. Uh, they talk about being able to handle 9K frame sizes. Uh, 9K MTUs, mm-hmm. uh, presumably they do something in there to disassemble it and then reassemble it at somewhere along the line. Um, but if not, I think they might also be referring to their private interconnects being able to support a 9K MTU. Again, good, useful for uh, very large data sets. They talk about right. bidirectional forward detection or BFD so that you get a, a an outage detection of the path, not the interface. That's very important. You want to mm-hmm. detect link failure, not interface failure so that you can detect a failure and then go down. And they also have some BGP enhancements that they seem to be proud of, but you can read it all in the show notes if you want to dig into it more um, and see if it's right for you. Yeah. All right, moving on, NVIDIA has announced a new networking platform to support AI workloads. It combines NVIDIA's Spectrum 4 Ethernet switch running in NVIDIA, formerly Mellanox ASIC, along with NVIDIA's own Bluefield 3 DPUs. And in case you aren't keeping up with the jargon, DPUs are essentially a rebranding of smart NICs that can run networking security and storage apps on a NIC in the server. And I think the big idea here is that rather than build specialized networks using InfiniBand or other protocols, the goal is to optimize Ethernet for latency-sensitive AI workloads. Uh, And there's also plenty of human talent that understands Ethernet and a whole ecosystem dedicated to increasing throughput you can get with Ethernet. So the idea is stick with Ethernet and it will make it work for AI if we have to, however much we have to bend it into shape. <laughs> I think there's a few things going on here. Um, there's there's definitely a, a bunch of issues 
around what's actually happening here. And I think um, NVIDIA has beaten everybody to the punch from producing a workable artificial intelligence AI uh, hardware solution. But the thing to remember about any time we talk about NVIDIA hardware, it is intimately, closely, proprietarily linked to its software platform. So that NVIDIA has developed APIs and libraries and programming libraries and little software abstractions and mm-hmm. a huge volume of software tools, which are all free. If you want to do AI and Python or, you know, any Rust or whatever, uh, NVIDIA's got a language library for you so you can just call it. And when you use that language library, it will automatically um, accelerate itself on NVIDIA hardware to the maximum possible performance. And that's that's a precursor to where we're heading here. And that's important to understand is that <laughs> uh, it's really important to understand that NVIDIA is like just so far ahead. Like if you look at Intel, for example, and you go looking for Intel, where did, where's Intel's AI-driven GPUs? Have we seen any of those yet? I, yeah, I don't know. No, I haven't seen one. I've got no doubt that you know that Intel's working on them, but they've been so busy, like looking at CPUs and getting rid of their DRAM and optimizing for profit generation instead of innovating and spending money on research, like AMD and Nvidia have done. That Intel's been caught almost exclusively outside of AI. It's got nothing. It's got some GPUs that aren't very good that nobody uses. Nvidia and AMD big in the GPU space, so when AI comes around. Um, you're going to see NVIDIA win because they've been focused on it, but they've also got a whole software platform that goes with it, right? We talked well, last week like about... With NVIDIA, they get a double bite at the Apple. They'll sell you the GPU, and then they'd love to sell you you know, an Ethernet fabric based on their, their silicon as well uh, to move all of the traffic across uh, that fabric to do the uh, AI workload processing. Yeah, but it's not an Ethernet fabric, Drew. It's it's kind of a little bit different. So <laughs> Yeah, we do have to dig into that a little. You have to dig into that, right? Yes, it's Ethernet. So they're using their Spectrum switches, which is the Mellanox acquisition from a couple of years back. But they're also combining it um, with their Bluefield 3 DPUs. So the solution that comes from NVIDIA, if you're buying NVIDIA fabrics, this accelerated Ethernet that they're talking about. And effectively, what they're doing is using Rocky in the Bluefield DPU and then the Mellanox Spectrum 4 ASIC, so it's a new ASIC that's inside of the Mellanox, inside of the the Spectrum X switches, to do high-frequency, low-latency networking. Now, this is Ethernet networking. It is not IP networking. It is not an IP fabric. It is an Ethernet fabric. All the multi-tenancy, all of the security, all of the features that you get in it are all based around Rocky. And Rocky is an idea that you can run RDMA over converged Ethernet. So that's Mm -hmm. R-O-C-E. Yep. And RDMA is a unique idea in that if I've got a, uh, inside of a server, I've got eight GPUs and they're interconnected by the super high performance, high speed interconnect. In the case of NVIDIA's, it's an NVLink, which is a really high, high bandwidth, high performance, consistent performance. But if I need to transfer memory in the GPU processing to another process on another server, I actually, I don't want to transfer it from the GPU memory to the main memory to the NIC across the fabric from the NIC up to the CPU and then the CPU to shift it from the memory into the GPU. That's just incredibly latent, incredibly not efficient at all. And so what you want is the ability to transfer directly from the GPU memory to the GPU memory on the other server with the minimum possible interference and the minimum possible delay. And that is what Rocky, Remote Data Memory Access, over Converged Ethernet does. And so Converged Ethernet does a whole bunch of things 
when you're on InfiniBand, which is where this remote direct memory access thing comes from, although in InfiniBand, it's often associated with certain other APIs like MPI and things like that. What InfiniBand does is it makes this massively parallel processing enables it. So you can transfer memory directly from uh, memory to memory. The problem with Ethernet is that when you try to do that, any sort of frame loss is massively destructive to the process. So um, there's a Cisco blog post which talks about this, and they say the AI training clusters have unique traffic patterns compared to traditional front-end networks. The GPUs can fully saturate the high bandwidth links as they send the results of their computations to their peers in a data transfer known as an all-to-all collective. At the end of this transfer, a barrier operation ensures that all GPUs are up to date. This creates a synchronization event in a network that causes the GPUs to be idled, waiting for the slowest path through the network to complete. The job completion time measures the performance of the network to ensure all paths are performing well. Right? So if you have a cluster of 16 or 72 GPUs, 8 GPUs per server, um, and they're all massively parallel multi-threaded, They've all got to have an identical map of the data so that they can all process all the possible paths through the AI uh, mm-hmm. processing engine, right? And if at the end of the run, some of them finish, they have to all sit there doing nothing, burning power right. for right. seconds, up to seconds, and before they can start the next job until the memory is synchronized. And that's the problem. And Rocky fixes this. But uh, the way that Rocky works is it just doesn't work the same as Ethernet. So it's... It is Ethernet. It was originally developed so that you could do, um, you know, have the sorts of features that you needed to do high processing just using standard Ethernet. And what we found about five to ten years ago is you really can't run Rocky on the same networks where you're running anything else, right? It just doesn't work. I, and so that's you end a up. The question I had is that if I'm, I, it, my assumption is if I'm buying into this platform or any, you know, AI workload fabric, I'm probably just going to run it as, you know, a standalone pod as opposed to just run it on uh, my existing data center network with other workloads. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's right. So you're really going to end up with what I call a pot of gold. You're going to have a brownfield data center and over Uh here is an AI and that's a pot of gold inside of your existing data center. That's a sales term. Right. You know, we talk about Greenfield being an exciting opportunity because it's... The gr- <laughs> this is a gold field. <laughs> this is a gold field. <laughs> um, and I think for most enterprises or even for scale clouds, I mean, you're talking really high powered. You're talking 35 uh, kilowatts in a rack, up to 50 kilowatts in some cases. Um, mm. And you can only... If you wanted to take delivery of some of these today, you can only buy them a rack at a time. And I think you can only buy a minimum order of five racks for some of these clusters. So now that is today built around InfiniBand, and tomorrow they'll be built around Ethernet using Bluefield. So the rocky part, the converged Ethernet part, needs the switch to be enabled with certain converged Ethernet features so that... Um, there is no packet loss in the fabric. But the real part about pacing out the dispatch of the packets is actually being done in the Bluefield DPU and the security functions and all that sort of stuff. And then we've talked before, we've done shows with NVIDIA talking about Bluefield 3 and the DOCA, which is their DOCA, which is their um, offload engine. As yeah, other libraries. It's all their libraries around using it. So you can you can actually use the DPU to accelerate the data transfer from one memory to the network and then at the other end accelerate the liftoff when it comes back off the network and back into the GPU memory. And I think this is the way that we're going to see clusters. So uh, there was an article out there this week uh, where the register did an interview with the people from Broadcom 
and the Broadcom folks were trying to say, oh, you know, that's just not, you know, we can do this in our, our silicon and we can make that happen. It's not a problem. Uh, but it is because without a DPU, and Broadcom doesn't have a DPU that I'm aware of, um, they're really going to struggle to be able to find a way to um, put a solution together which actually solves that issue. Well, I have seen so, videos from Arista talking about their ability to build an AI fabric on Ethernet using Rocky. Uh, I, I don't remember them saying anything in particular about the server NICs, but uh, with Arista hardware, which is essentially running Broadcom, so, yeah. you know, Arista is also saying they can do it. I, I suppose NVIDIA would say our secret sauce is the fact that we have the DPU to accelerate um, the traffic across this fabric into the servers. Yeah. In, in an AI cluster, you need the DPUs to accelerate. Uh -huh. Like you're talking 400 gigabits per second today and the upscale clouds are already asking for 800 gigabit per second interfaces. You're just not going to move that data off unless you've got a DPU. And if you're going to implement Rocky in there, and I mean, even NVIDIA's decided that its version of Rocky has a, a bunch of uh, proprietary extensions. So it talks about adaptive routing for Rocky, performance isolation. Uh, they can guarantee you very low latency, latency with very low jit jitter and very short tail latency. So what that means is they can guarantee you that packets will go on a consistent path across the, the fabric. And if the fabric uh -huh. breaks or if there's some sort of congestion in the path, it will route around them. Route. Now, that's something that exists in InfiniBand today, and you need it to be able to let your AI cluster run at maximum speed. Now, if you're saying, I've got an ASIC that can do that, yes, I agree with you. But my point is it's not the ASIC that matters. It's the whole solution. Getting, getting the data out of the GPU into the NIC, off the NIC, into the fabric, across the fabric in with zero jitter. You want It doesn't actually right. matter if it's kind of slow, as I understand it. What happens is it must run at the same pace so that, the, so that you don't get packet loss. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, they're supposed to be lossless, yes. They're supposed that's, to be lossless. Because if you've got a re-request, a retransmission, then, you know, we talked before about the whole cluster idling until the data. That idle time, it, yep. There. And a data loss is the enemy at this point, right? So... My view is that, yeah, you can make a point that your ASIC has got the same features as, you know, uh, NVIDIA Spectrum X, you know, the Spectrum 4, which is a 51.2 terabit per second ASIC. It doesn't have much in it. I agree. That's right. But the advantage that the Mellanox switch has is it has a very, very fast Ethernet forward forwarding performance. Like it's often used in HFT trading because it's one of the fastest switches on the network. Broadcom is not remotely even the fastest ASIC out there. So they, uh -huh. they lose there, but that's not a big deal. What really matters is not dropping packets. And sure, Broadcom, Jericho 3, AIs have really smart vo virtual output queuing and things like that, but virtual output queues fall down when you're running 800 gigabits per second on 48 ports at 800 gigabits per second. And then uh -huh. if you suddenly get an in-cast on six of those ports, you can have all the virtual output queuing you want. You've still got a problem that is only solved by Rocky. So who do you think this is for? Because my assumption is that the big public cloud vendors who are going to set up uh, you know, AI workload clusters don't want to be beholden to a single vendor. They'd rather bite off their own hand than be beholden to one company to provide them a fabric. I think that's what they want, but that's not what they're going to get. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so right now, all of the AI is being done on NVIDIA APIs and NVIDIA mm -hmm. software extensions. So, you know, if you go and look at Adobe, if you go and look at MidJourney, you go and look at ChatGPT, they're using NVIDIA's hardware to do all of that. And you don't have a choice. 
It's not like you can go and use AMD's GPUs for this, right? They just don't have the ecosystem. In theory, you know, their GPUs will be okay, but they just don't, they're not there yet. It'll be a couple of years, I think. Now, I would say mm-hmm. that AMD is the natural competitor here, right? It is the, mm-hmm. it's certainly not Intel who doesn't have, or doesn't visibly have, and they may have something, but we're not seeing any signs of it at the moment, if you know what I mean. Um, we're not seeing any, you know, GPU makers from anywhere else in the semiconductor ecosystem that would be able to perform at this specific position. And NVIDIA has gotten such a competitive edge here. They're so far um, ahead of everybody else in terms of they shipped these APIs and these softwares two years ago, announced them two years ago, captured the market early. I don't, I think what you'll find is that a lot of these API AI clusters for general purpose use, that is not the internal AI of that AWS is generating for itself or that Google is generating it for itself using its own heart at Silicon, they're going to be running NVIDIA APIs and those APIs are going to be running on NVIDIA hardware. And so what they're doing is they're building pots of gold inside their data center where the NVIDIA AI cluster is. And then around it, they're going to have a bunch of services like, oh, here's my data lake, here's my S3 bulk storage, here's my Snowflake instance, here's my... Do you know what I mean? And then they move the data out of that, throw it into the AI processing, and then pull it back out again. Yeah. Although I will say, we just talked about this last week. DriveNets introduced uh, their own you know, AI fabric based on Ethernet, and you can run that across Broadcom, ASICs, and standard NICs. Yeah, and that's the Jericho 3 switch, and you can use standard NICs. But, it's, but I don't think you're going to get the sort of performance that NVIDIA is going to be able to extract from this because you need the DPU to accelerate the I.O. and to do the direct memory transfers from the GPU directly onto the board. I think you could make a fabric that is significantly accelerated, right, and Mm -hmm. AI ready with Rocky support, but you've still got to find a NIC somewhere in there to do the Rocky, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not just, you don't implement the Rocky at Ingress. You, You have to implement it at the server. Otherwise, you drop the Ethernet frames between the server and the switch. Okay, so you're yeah. saying Nvidia's uh, hook here is that is the DPU, the 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 smart neck in the server. Well, that and the fact that they don't just make the servers and the CPU. Oh, they they're talking about the GPUs, ARM CPUs. Yeah. <laughs> they make the Grace Hopper, and the, you know they're taking all of those ARM CPUs and putting them in there. But if you want an Intel, they'll sell you one of those as well. You know, whatever. Um, they make the DPU and they make all of that silicon themselves, right? Mm-hmm. They also mm-hmm. own a silicon photonics company. So Mellanox acquired a silicon photonics company about four or five years ago. They make their own SFPs and optical cables, and they make the switches. They make all the silicon in those switches themselves and all the software. So the acquisition of Cumulus Linux and um, and NetQ for the network monitoring is now a key part of the AI fabric. So I will also it, remind folks that in addition to all that, NVIDIA also continues to make InfiniBand switches. So it seems like they're taking a you know almost a Cisco approach here. We have one of everything. Whatever you need, we can got you. Now, my reading of this was that up until now, NVIDIA was using InfiniBand because that was ready to go. So the first couple of generations of these AI hardware platforms with all of the NVIDIA software load on the top were uh-huh. running InfiniBand. The disadvantage of InfiniBand is that it only scales up to a certain size. Um and it's only got a maximum of 400 gigs of performance, okay? So mm-hmm. there may be an 800 gig coming, but really there's only one company making InfiniBand, and guess who that is? It's NVIDIA. <laughs> That's NVIDIA. And I think, yeah, I think there's one other maker of InfiniBand, but I've, I didn't have enough time this week to go and check all that out. Um, so 
the if they decide to go with Ethernet and do it on Rocky, which does make sense, right? Uh-huh. InfiniBand was fine for where we were a year ago. You know, this wasn't ready to go. Bluefield 3 wasn't ready to go, you know, whatever. We're now talking about running from 128 by 400 gig ports inside of a Spectrum X to maybe running 64 by 800 gig ports, right? Or mm-hmm. even, and they're talking about in a two-tier fabric, a two-tier leaf spine topology, they're talking 8,000 ports in a two-tier leaf spine topology. That is a right. really large AI cloud, whereas InfiniBand can really only get sort of up to about 800, I think, as a rough number. Don't quote me on that. Uh, but InfiniBand has a limited radix about how low radix, which is the maximum radius of how far you can have switches. Like, what, what is what is its ability to scale out? And the two-tier fabric that we now use for, um, you know, the cloth tiering type, leaf spine type of thing, means that we can scale out to a very high number of ports because we have so many ports in a switch, 128 400 gig ports in a switch means you can get really high radix. Um, so it's going to be, I think you're going to see AI network is going to be big. You're going to see um, the Cisco blog post that I saw basically said, our Silicon One can be AI ready too. Okay, I accept that. And I think Cisco Silicon One has got some great features, but it's going to be really expensive because that um, Silicon One wasn't designed to be used in switches. It was really designed to be used in um, high-end WAN routers. And mm-hmm. sold, you know, at, into service provider cores. So I can't imagine that the pricing on that will be um, immediately market winning. Um, maybe, maybe Cisco will say we have to be involved in this if we want to be in. Uh, I saw that Dell announced that they're releasing NVIDIA um, servers on their own platforms. And I went and did some looking up. And there's a thing called NVIDIA MGX. And NVIDIA MGX is where an OEM can sign up and they can choose, mix and choose which part of the NVIDIA stack that they want to take. Do they want to take the CPUs? Do they want to take Bluefield DPUs? Do they want to get Spectrum X switches? Do they want, you know, which part of it? And then they put it together. And, and so Dell and HPE and Cisco are all going to be producing NVIDIA AI servers, but they're all going to be quite varied because it's going to vary on which part of the NVIDIA stack they buy. Mm-hmm. And whether that's relevant to your use case. So very complicated, very messy. I'm not sure. I think customers will probably want to go with NVIDIA's solution because it's much closer to the to the canonical, if that makes sense. And buying your AI service from Dell, Cisco, or HPE, you're actually getting sort of a, oh, look, I'll take another Tesla electric engine and I'll take the Ford batteries and I'll jam it all together and... You know, in and I've got a Franken. Yes. Yeah, in a Toyota uh, body, and I've got a Franken solution. So, yeah. Um, I think for time being, at least, that's where we're at. Still very early until, you know, give it a couple of years, people start to spin up as people start to get more experience and, and working on it. I think the market can change. I would be looking for AMD to do something here. They've got the DPUs, they bought Pensando. Might take them a few more years to turn that business around into something that's workable and something that fits into an AI, but they've got the GPUs, they've got market-leading GPUs, so they're close to producing, you know, highly parallelized processing. They've got their own CPU. They don't have to be stuck with ARM like NVIDIA is. Um, And they've got all the manufacturing and they've got the money. Like uh, AMD is now bigger than Intel by a significant margin in terms of market value. They're making deals, making sales, they're making a profit while Intel's definitely in the struggle mode. So... Um, I would expect we could probably just see two horses in the AI race and at this point. We'll see what Intel can do, if they can turn it around. But I think the future will be NVIDIA and AMD. 
right, there's a prediction for the spreadsheet. I think we should leave it there because we've dedicated a lot of time to this. We've got more news to cover. Um, but yeah, as always, right. if you've you've got opinions, hit us up, packapressures.net slash FU. Uh, we'd mm-hmm. love to hear what you think. Strong opinions, right. loosely held. Convince me otherwise. <laughs> and if you're a vendor or, you know, you're an AI expert, please get in touch. I'd love to hear more. Um, so that I can put that into the mix and we can come back around. Everything that I've told you here today is what I found what from researching and from reading and from various places. Happy to take in more inputs. Come back next week and tell you what I got wrong every time. Yep, every time. Moving on, uh, Cisco has announced it intends to acquire Armor Blocks. This is an email security startup that uses large language models and natural language understanding to protect companies against email threats like fraud, social engineering, and malicious attachments. Not a lot of details in the announcement other than I think Cisco realizes it has kind of a gaping AI security hole in its portfolio and it plans to backfill it with acquisitions. It's not backfilling. It's innovation from behind, Drew. Innovation <laughs> from innovation. behind. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a nicer uh, way to put it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, Cisco's sort of, at this point in time, Cisco's uh, not taking too many risks. I think they're doing a lot of financial engineering to sustain their results and profitability, which is, you know, fine. Maybe that's the, the choice. I think it's certainly in the enterprise IT arm, they've taken that approach and Cisco is focused on other parts of its business, hoping that that's where the growth and the profitability is in the future. So I think their current playbook means waiting around for a technology to evolve and then buying a small company to add to its existing portfolio just to add that susan of dressing to make it like I've now got AI. Because uh, when you go and look at Armor Blocks and, and check out its features and walk it through the demos, which are very well done, by the way. Very, I hope they keep that marketing team because they did an excellent job. Um, this is uh, just using their analyzing email, picking up security and content surveillance and saying things like, I can give you... Uh, data loss prevention, phishing detection, behavioral anomaly detection. I can uh, see, I can target spear phishing attacks, business email compromise, all of that stuff. And they're saying they're using AI to do that. Well, that obviously just straps onto their existing umbrella offerings uh, and could replace a lot of their existing algorithms. So I noticed that Cisco didn't make a number on this. So presumably it's very small and not significant. Yeah. The thing I worry about in regard to Cisco is, again, because they have so many products, that's a lot of silos for all the data they're collecting. And the idea is you want to be able to normalize it and pour it all into one data lake to build your models around. I don't know how feasible that is if you've got a bunch of disparate products with their you know disparate data sources. I think it's just a lot of integration work for Cisco to catch up to folks like Palo Alto Networks, Fortinet, and Juniper, who have, you know, are, I think, ahead in, you know, taking the data they have, being able to work with it, build models around it, and then extract value from it. I think Cisco's got a way to go to catch up to them. I think so. And, you know, why isn't Cisco doing this in-house? Customers pay subscription fees to have new license, you know, with as part of their licenses. And I'd expect a team of developers to be working on a roadmap. And yeah. this should have been on the roadmap, right? Why are they buying a company to do this? So... You know, maybe the headcount reductions went too far. You know, we've had a 10,000 at Christmas and usual um, mm-hmm. firing mm-hmm. firing staff just before Christmas uh, every year. That happens every year. Uh, so maybe they went too far or maybe they just don't want to invest in training people. Maybe it's uh, instead of training people, it's cheaper to fire them and then just buy a small company and bring them back in and use them to form the basis of a training cadre and then train the people around them. I don't know. Maybe that's just, I don't know. Can't make any conclusions. Yeah. 
Link in the show notes if you want to read about it yourself. A quick note to those of you running old versions of Juniper's Junos Network OS, the company has announced that as of July 1st, 2023, which is less than a month from now, it's no longer going to accept or take action on support calls for Junos 10, 11, and 13, all versions of those releases. Junos is currently in version 22, uh, so 10, 11, 13 are pretty old at this point anyway, uh, but the link is in the show notes if you want to check up on it. Uh, and thanks to Steve Paluka who tweeted the link this morning, which I happen to catch. Not much to say, except I think it's about time we realise that sitting around on 10 to 15-year-old operating systems is not the way of the future. No, definitely not. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. Your branches change, your SD-WAN should too. Join Palo Alto Networks to see how I... Join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. As businesses focus on driving the next growth phase, branch transformation has become a key priority for IT leaders. Critical industries such as finance, retail, healthcare, and manufacturing rely on a network of branch offices to serve their customers. This newly established trends of hybrid work, digital-first customers, and accelerated cloud adoption are forcing organizations to rethink their branch IT strategy. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks hosted an exclusive online event this May. You can get the full replay of the event to see how NextGen, SD-WAN, and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to sdxcentral.com to find the link to sign up for this replay or get the link in the show notes for Network Break episode 433. Uh, phishing sites closely associated with the domain name register have dropped significantly ever since Meta, that's Facebook's parent company, filed a lawsuit against the registrar, and that's according to a post by Brian Krebs. Uh, Meta sued the registrar, which is called Fremon, alleging that the company, quote, provides free domain name registration services and shields its customers' identity even after being presented with evidence that the domain names are being used for illegal purposes, end quote. Yeah, so Krebs on security has uh, published this blog post. It's very interesting, and he talks about how basically when this company was taken down by Facebook, it created a massive difference for a while, uh, but it didn't really change the phishing. What My point for raising this topic, Drew, wasn't to say, oh, Facebook took down a domain name, uh, the .cc domain name registrar, because it was just giving away free domains and it was being used by you know, malicious sites and scammers and grifters of various sorts. The question mm-hmm. here is... Where are the internet bodies that run the internet? Why are they not doing something about this? So the IANA, uh, the Internet Architecture Numbers Association, they're the ones Uh who appoint these TLD holders and set policy. Why hasn't Freenom's license been revoked and their TLD been removed from root service? If it is absolutely that bad, then stop it. Revoke their license, take the domain back under control, flush it, relet it, give the contract to somebody else. Like, why why aren't they doing that where's the where's the internet society why is it not getting on the phone to iana and saying you go and do your job right mm-hmm, i looked at mm-hmm. the dns abuse institute which is somebody that we did an interview their job is to monitor this and produce statistics and then hopefully try and provide data to the bodies that could do something about it not a word not a word mm. so mm. i'm quite disappointed in these committees which are you know they're all non-profit groups they're all staffed by very nice people working very hard to do the right thing but they're doing the right thing of nothing. And that's the problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm glad that Meta pursued this because it probably is in their interest, but we can't rely on Meta sort of policing these kinds of things. There are standards bodies or organizational bodies whose job this is, and they should be doing that. And apparently they are not. Mm. And I mean, we are talking uh, a substantial decline in domain registrations. There's 52,000 in November 22. Um, I went searching through the various places uh, and Krebs sort of said, well, and now after this letdown, there's only 12,000 domains uh, being reported in the top TLDs. And that's um, pretty grim from Freenom. Right. So. Mm. right, right from Freenom, yeah. 
All right, moving on, uh, Riverbed Technologies being acquired by private equity firm Vector Capital. Riverbed was taken off the public market back in 2015 uh, by another private equity firm, Toma Bravo, in 2021. It filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy and entered into a restructuring agreement to help it manage its debt, and then Apollo Capital Management became majority owner. Now Vector Capital is going to be its new owner. Uh, Vector also owns companies you may have heard of like Malwarebytes and WatchGuard Technologies. Yeah, it's a strange, it's funny how Riverbed continues to live on. And it's been a while since we checked in with them. So when I saw this, I thought, that's really interesting. I noticed that they continue to sell their application acceleration portfolio. And Mm -hmm. that product portfolio has been extended to run on um, the cloud and various things. So obviously, there's some money there. It would be harsh to say that that is rent extraction. But, you know, it would seem that that business still has enough profitability for them to get refinanced and rebought out, you know, come out of Chapter yep. 11. They've abandoned their SD-WAN products, which we were all got, uh, you know, told about and um, found a lot of information, which was a rebadged Versa um, put on top, and that didn't work. But what they have added is DEM, uh, digital experience monitoring and observability onto the portfolio. Now, I haven't been watching them close enough to find out if this is something that came out of uh, Tom Bravo or a capital, one of the venture, the private equity firms, maybe, because they try to buy companies and sometimes mash them together. But either way, observability and digital experiencing monitoring, both of those are crowded markets and mature markets. So digital experiencing monitoring is kind of everywhere. I, I feel like they've had a network observability or a network, we used to call it network monitoring back in the day uh, for for a while, at least, you know, five years. And now maybe they're rebranding it as observability because that is the new hot term. Um, and it, it, it is an interesting space. Uh, but yeah I, yeah, I don't know if they're going the same dem route, like uh, putting a uh, an agent on an endpoint to get that kind of visibility, but they are playing in the network space. Yeah, I don't really, it, it's hard to say what happened to, to Riverbed because they seem to be yeah. rolling along pretty well in the ADC market and all that. And then things just kind of went south. Well, they had a problem where the CEO really didn't want to let go of its WAN acceleration business and didn't mm-hmm. um, at and all. WAN acceleration was getting its lunch eaten by SD-WAN essentially. Yeah, very much. <laughs> and, you know, when you look at Silver Peak, turn themselves into one of the best SD-WAN companies, grew right. quite and then, substantially and then was acquired by Aruba to become, right. you know, HPE Aruba's SD-WAN product. You know, I'm a big fan of what Silver Peak was doing. I think Juniper Networks got the best one, the 128T, um, with their session-oriented SD-WAN. I think that was probably the most superior technology solution that was out there. Um, but it was very hard to sell unless you knew what you were buying. I think now it's a different game. But, you know, to be sitting there with a WAN acceleration, observability, and digital experience in monitoring in 2023, I, you know, maybe they're selling that to the people who are doing WAN acceleration. You know, maybe it's uh, uh, more of an SD-WAN play. It's just not called that. It's still called app acceleration or something like that. Anyway, good luck to Weverbet. Wish them the best. Yep, and if they've got stuff in their portfolio they want to let us know, we're always happy to get a briefing. Uh, feel free to reach out. Yeah, our last story before we wrap, uh, Amazon has paid just over $30 million to the U.S. Federal Trade Commission or FTC to settle allegations of multiple customer data privacy violations. Amazon denies breaking the law. Uh, the FTC allegations include a Ring video camera employee who spied on female customers of Ring via cameras installed in their bedrooms and bathrooms, and also a failure to delete Alexa recordings of children at their parents' requests. Uh, Reuters reports Amazon is saying, well, we disagree with the FTC's claims regarding both Alexa and Ring and deny violating the law. These settlements put the matters behind us. Uh, I have a problem with this, Drew. (laughs) And I think think most of the governments are not taking a very positive view of this. 
Uh, Amazon is, of course, for its own liability reasons, right, probably saying it's not our fault, it was a mistake. But here's mm-hmm. what I would say is that um, it's obvious here that what Amazon did was say one thing and then do another. Now, is it incompetence to fail to delete the data? Is it incompetence to fail to prevent people from getting access to this data? Is it a failure of process or is it malicious or willful by the executives of Amazon to not take these precautions? Uh But my general sense is, or my general view, is that surveillance capitalism like this defaults to collecting data at any cost. And internally, people processes will tend to avoid breaking the stated purpose. So when you say, oh, we need to be collecting this data, and then somebody says, go and delete that because that's what we have to do, the people who are actually doing this are sort of saying, they're going, oh, that's really not what we do here. Do you know what I mean? They're scared of deleting it. I just, sure, just got this sure. feeling that, you know, it's that human gap between intent and outcome. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, $30 million, that's not even a toast up to Amazon uh, and no acceptance by them of responsibility. So uh, one, obviously they have zero incentive to change any of their practices when it comes to collecting data on their customers. And two, it continues to boggle my mind that, you know, customers want these things in their home, but there it is. Well, we know they don't. If you actually look around, people are actually not installing them in their home because they are worried about this. And that and that is why Ring and, you know, like all of these in-home systems haven't taken off the way we expected. Remember, we were going to have chats in the home, you'd be able to talk to your voice thing, and we don't. Nobody does because they don't trust it in the large, in the main. So, right. Don't need to talk to my fridge. Yes. All right, that wraps up the news portion. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto Networks, talking about how SD-WAN, SASE, and digital experience management are impacting branch networks. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushers, we're speaking with sponsor Palo Alto Networks on the branch of the future. Now, in 2023, the lines between WAN, brand security, and WAN security, remote users, and zero trust All of that stuff that we once thought of as just outside of the office is now actually increasingly and becoming very blurry and very hard to delineate as separate things. A WAN was once a WAN, the branch was once a branch, and now what we're seeing is all of this is converging into a single thing, even things like remote access, and now we're adding zero trust. And that's not surprising when you consider that an SD-WAN Edge device is a stateful, flow-oriented device that can perform application identification. It's fairly obvious that security isn't too much of a jump. And it's also fairly obvious that all of a sudden you can start to increasingly add the whole branch LAN in. And if you can accept those ideas, then what is the branch of the future going to look like? And in today's show, we are talking to Shankar Ramachandran, who is the Director of Product Managing from Palo Alto Networks on this topic. Shankar, thanks so much for joining us today. Let's get straight into it. The, the I think where I want to initially start the conversation is about requirements. What's changing and what are the trends in the, uh, the way today's branches are shifting into the future? We are basically seeing three broad trends um, from a... Uh, from an environment point of view. The first thing is essentially when you talk about employees, the entire fact that we now have a hybrid workforce. Um, you have some employees coming in for some days of the week. They're predominantly collaborating over video. Uh, one doesn't know how much bandwidth consumption is going to be happening in the branch. Mm. Uh, network admins need to think about, hey, uh, do I have the branch properly sized? Am I going to be over consuming? Am I going to be under consuming? The second broad trend is around cloud adoption. It kind of goes synonymous with the term that people use with regards to digitization of the branch. Uh, You no longer have applications just residing in the data center. You have applications residing in the cloud. 
you have SaaS applications, you have folks accessing applications via the internet. Mm -hmm. And the third aspect of it is, uh, and it's been around for some time, uh, you always had badge readers, you always had temperature sensors, you always had uh, uh, cameras in the branch. Uh, mm. Now we are talking about a scenario where you need to start talking about security, not only for or zero trust network access, not only for applications, for users, but also things. Um, there's a report that said that there are going to be 18 billion devices sitting in the branch. Mm. Um, that's maybe 4x, 5x of the number of users that could be sitting in the branch by the year 2030. But that's uh, that. Now, the interesting thing about that is when I first thought, thought of that, I thought, you know, oh, there's going to be an application in head office that's going to start monitoring the air conditioning in the branches. That's not what's going to happen. It's the air conditioning is going to be monitored by a sub a, com a company that you're paying to do that, or the security system is rented as a SaaS service from some off-prem, and they want access to the internet, and you need to control that so that if those devices are compromised or if they're using too much bandwidth, you need to control all of that. That's that's the thrust, though, isn't it? You're absolutely right there, and and mm. not only that, we had an internal study at Palo Alto Networks Unit 42 IoT report. Uh, not only do you need to con control that, but we also found out that, um, again, some numbers that I'm throwing out there, 57% of those IoT devices are vulnerable. They're mm. vulnerable because they're running, um, they're essentially having traffic that's basically unencrypted. Mm -hmm. They're vulnerable because 83% of those connected devices are running an unsupported OS. Um, I have no idea on what those devices are. I need to have visibility of those. And I actually mm. need to start defining policies in terms of what um, those devices can have access to. You can control Windows XP on your desktops, but you can't on the air conditioning or the security system, which might be running you know, on a Raspberry Pi with a 10-year-old Linux distro or something like that. Correct. I need mm. to know exactly. I mean, that's not even a scalable model. And mm. why would I even want an appliance that's running an agent out there? I would rather leverage the existing resources. Every time I deploy an appliance in a branch, I'm actually talking of the cost of the appliance. Mm -hmm. I'm talking the cost to manage it. I'm talking about the cost of a truck roll. I mean, that's the biggest cost out there. Mm. I truck that's roll. That's the biggest direct cost. That's the biggest direct cost is is truck rolls. Truck, but the secondary yes. cost is, you know, like if there's a vulnerability and somebody like Target five to seven years ago when somebody came in through the air conditioning system and then hijacked all of the the credit all the credit card things and stole a whole bunch of money from them and then the brand damage and you know, indirect costs are, are much higher usually you're absolutely right there mm. so it's it's more than just securing apps and users it's securing apps users and things and that's that's something fundamental in terms of what we see at least one of the fundamental pillars in terms of what we see in terms of our future solution mm. that we're considering and a lot of that traffic's still just unencrypted. So if I'm a particularly motivated hacker, you know, or cracker, then the real story there is that uh, you know you can actually try and get data from that. If you can get into the feed, you can start to see things. But I, I think also the thing here is that a lot of IT teams are having not so much less time to do work. They've just got more devices. Like when I was managing networks 20 years ago, a network with 30 or 40 routers in the WAN and a data center with 10, 15 switches, you know, and a campus with, you know, maybe a few hundred devices was thought of as big. With this, you're now talking about, you know, networks that go from 20,000 users go to hundreds of thousands of endpoints. 
And there's just this massive transition. And then that leads to the natural thing in terms of what all network admins should look at. I mean, if I am a, a lean IT team, um, I want to be basically looking at consolidation of appliances in the branch. I mm. want to be looking at, hey, what services could I be offering for the cloud? Does mm. it make sense for me to deploy a security appliance? Is it better for me, from a, or is it scalable for me in terms of having that, that, that cloud security um, getting offered? Um, it doesn't matter whether my number of employees increase from 10,000 to 20,000. Um, mm. I can easily scale when that solution is offered in the cloud. Well, I think it's not so much, I think scaling is one side of it. Like if you're going to have an unknown number of devices on your network or uh, one of the things we've talked about with Palo Alto Networks over the time is your approach to SD-WAN, which says we just um, say there's a subscription license for all the bandwidth across all of your nodes. And maybe this branch over here is running at 100 megs today, but over next week it's going to run at a gig because there's a special event. You shouldn't have to go and buy a device that handles a gig. You should be able to say, I've got 100 devices on my network. That's another way of handing flexibility. But I was more thinking about automation and orchestration, the ability to say, I recognize this device as something that's unsafe. I need to put it in a segment, uh, you know, some sort of micro segment to keep it safe and stop it communicating with anything but its intended destination. And the, the first step for it is the visibility aspect of it. I need to be able to recognize what are the devices sitting in the branch out there. I need to be able to send that information. Then I need to group it in the appropriate. Uh, segmentation or whatever you would want to group it as, and then apply mm. the security policies to it. So the so the the fundamental starting point is how do I get that initial visibility? Yeah. Um, how do I get that information coming from the branch? And you don't want to go out on site with a packet sniffer and try and find it, <laughs> and manually write and manually write a rule. You need to be able to do it from head office. Yes. Mm. Yes. So can you talk about how you get that visibility then? With, with how, how does SD WAN or or Securica Services Edge tie into visibility? So the, the first thing that we, from an overall solution point of view that we're trying to do is incorporate the assets that we already have there. Uh, and the first step with regards to the IoT devices at least is to make sure that the sensor that we have there in terms of getting that visibility information is residing on that one appliance or the SD-WAN appliance box or uh, appliance that we have in the branch. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how am I getting that visibility? Hey, can I send the DHCP or the... Uh, or the ARP information in a secure fashion to Prisma Access. Uh, Prisma Access then basically, which is our cloud security solution, mm -hmm. then appropriately groups it uh, and then uh, does its magic. Uh, and the magic is essentially, hey, what's the security policy that can be applied out there? Can this device be actually be talking to this particular app? Um, is someone else sitting in some other user group trying to have access to that particular device? Uh, should they be allowed to do so? Uh, and that's the that's the broad principles on which Prisma Access is based on, which is mm. essentially making sure that you have uh, least privilege access mm. and making sure that only the right people or things are getting access to the right information and assets. I think in marketing terms, you call this over at Palo Alto Networks, you call this the app-defined fabric. You don't see the network as a group of packets or even as a group of flows. You see it as a group of apps and each app has a control and you apply rules according to the application, not to the packets. The foundational principle of our app defined fabric is essentially saying that, okay, in today's day and age, uh, we need to have a direct to app architecture. Gone are the mm. days when you basically said uh, a fabric was based on network principles. You need to mm. have policies that are running out there, which are more than just network principles of latency, loss and jitter. 
Mm. You need to start considering things like, hey, um, I mean, you're talking about application access. Hey, uh, what's my application uh, round trip time? What's my server response time? Um, am I looking at when I'm talking to you? Am I looking at the MOS score? What's the codec that I'm using? Can I define app policies based on that? Um, what's the right path when I define those app policies? So um, that's that's the foundational principle of that. Uh, of, hmm. of our overall solution and what that yeah, essentially but that's key means. To your, that's key to your automation is that you say, I want to control this app. I don't have to go and identify its IP address or its source or it's a VLAN or, you know, and the IP addresses of it. I can just say, I want this application to be defined as this. I want this control or I want this traffic policy or I want this security policy applied to it. I think that's, we don't under, I think we underestimate that in terms of, how that then extends into zero trust, but also in terms of operational advantage. And the the key thing for us from an overall solution point of view is both our networking policies as well as our security policies are based on the same policy constructs, which are essentially three. Mm. App ID, user ID, device ID. Which yeah. user wants access to what particular app? Which user wants access to which particular device? Which device wants access to what particular app? Uh, and essentially that fundamentally allows us to make sure that when we are collecting information and mm-hmm. which we are reporting as part of our dashboards, mm-hmm. uh, we are able to do so in a consistent manner. Uh, we are the only vendor out there who basically has consistent policy constructs for both network and security from a SASE solution point of view. Right. So you're collecting uh, a significant amount of data, uh, probably too much for you know a person or a team of people to parse and and find actionable information from. Is there an AI or ML uh, aspect to this as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, when you talk about the data that we collect, we are basically collecting data across users, branch. We are collecting real-time traffic. We have capabilities that basically even collect synthetic traffic information, Um, network information, security information. All of this is basically sitting in a single data lake. The data is complete for us. The data is consistent. And the data is correct across both our networking constructs, which is Prisma SD1, and, and security construct, which is Prisma Access. And once we collect the data, then it gets into the, the rules of, hey, uh, uh, am I seeing there's a particular issue? What's the root cause of that issue? How am I able to correlate information? And that's where a lot of AI ML comes into play. Uh, we are able to proactively tell, uh, tell our network admins, hey, there is a particular issue. And this is the root cause because we are able to correlate information out there. Mm. We are able to then provide them uh, remediations or guided remediations. So uh, a lot of this is possible only because of the power of data science with our AI ML engine in it. And I think that's also part of the zero trust um, change that we're seeing as well, because a branch isn't necessarily, you know, a piece of real estate rented or under lease. It's also now the home office or the coffee shop. I, I, I like to think of the branch as a coffee shop sometimes, you know, or a plane or, you know, the lounge at an airport if you're that way inclined. And that means that zero trust now becomes part of an SD-WAN. You shouldn't have to have one solution for remote access and another one for SD-WAN. They should converge, do you think? Yes. I mean, at the end of the day, the foundational principles are exactly the same. How does a user mm-hmm. get access to an application and how are we able to provide a solution in a secure fashion? The user could be, as you said, in a coffee shop, in a flight, at home, even mm-hmm. in the branch. How are we making sure that our overall solution is consistent? How are we making sure that there's consistent policies that are applied? There's consistent data that's reflected. And mm-hmm. uh, most importantly, 
how are we making sure that the admins are able to know exactly what's happening where now, is the user sitting it's one of the interesting parts of sd-wan is once you create an encrypted connection it just becomes like a remote access vpn and that all that traffic starts to approximate each other and so it became very easy for sd-wan providers to add single user branch like or a single user remote access as part of the SD-WAN and then bind it into SASE as well. So you just VPN in and that's a cloud hosted service from Palo Alto Networks, if I remember right. Prisma Access is indeed mm. a cloud hosted service uh, mm. with the ability to scale irrespective of where the user is sitting in. They could be sitting in the US or they could mm -hmm. be sitting in some remote town in, uh, in a country in the African continent. Um, you will basically be talking to your lows, uh, closest Prisma Access node. Mm. And uh, the foundational principles of uh, of our Zitna 2.0 take effect. Yeah. So, so I, one I, thing... I think, sorry, Greg. Uh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. One thing about SD-WAN is its uh, capability to measure application performance and obviously make uh, you know traffic decisions on, on that application performance. Can uh, I think I also understand that uh, Palo Alto Networks can now bring this directly to the end user, which I think is relevant given that folks are operating in a hybrid work environment now, sometimes in an office, sometimes at home, sometimes in a coffee shop or whatever. So our ADEM functionality uh, can be both sitting in a appliance in the branch or could be sitting on the GP client that's residing on a person's laptop. And, and what that basically helps is, uh, helps troubleshoot whether are you having, I mean, at the end of the day, it basically is addressing a single goal, which is user to application access. Um, is there an issue on the local LAN? Is that the reason that you're not able to access? Uh, uh, is your CPU utilization on your laptop too high? Um, mm. provides segment-wise insights from the place where you're accessing to the actual application. Um, is the application reachable? These are all very fundamental aspects that the ADEM functionality is able to offer, both for uh, what we would call a remote worker or for uh, a branch user. That's all we've got time for today. This was a really short Tech Bytes, just trying to get you enough information on Palo Alto Networks and about the branch of the future. Thanks so much to Shankar for coming on the show and talking with us. If you'd like more information, don't hesitate to go over to the Packet Pushers website and check out the show notes associated with this. In particular, we want to draw your attention to an exclusive virtual on-demand event where Palo Alto Networks partnered with SDX Central to showcase a whole bunch of features and have a lot of conversations with practitioners and analysts on this topic. So there's a lot more content out there. If you wanted to find out more, we also have a lot of podcasts that we've done with Palo Alto, who've been a repeat sponsor, a repeat supporter of the Packer Pushes. Just do a search for Palo Alto Networks on our website and you'll find a whole bunch of podcasts there talking about and diving into almost all of the topics that we talked today in much more detail. And of course, when you go and contact Palo Alto to get more information, don't hesitate to mention that you heard about it on Packet Pushes. As always, um, it would be helpful if you tell everybody about it, tell your friends, tell your enemies, talk about us on social media. It always helps us to be here. And as always, remember that too much technology would never be enough. <laughs>